For the week of September 27th, 2017, this is Think Outside the Beltway. Hello, everybody. On the show this week, we talk about, hey, breaking news, McCain kills Graham Cassidy, maybe, probably. And then we talk about Trump at the UN. I am Stephen Cox, founder of the Facebook group, My Liberal Pals, and host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. With me, as always, are Chad Levinson. He is the Stanley Kaplan Visiting Postdoctoral Fellow in Political Science and Leadership Studies at Williams College, and he is our resident political scientist. Hello, Chad. Hello, everybody. And also David Gershwin, Democratic strategist and former chief of staff to L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. He is our resident political strategist. Hello to you, David. Hello and good day. And also, may I say, uh, Lashana Tova. Um, what, what year is it, by the way? 5778, oh. one year later. Yeah, it is, Israel doesn't look a, a year above uh, 5729. How about that? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and then actually on a, kind of a somber note, I would like to send all of our love and thoughts and all that stuff to the people of Mexico City and the people of Puerto Rico. Um, it's just horrible what's been going on in that region of the world. So uh, everybody down there, we're, we're certainly thinking about you. So look, I usually start the show on a couple of pop cultural items or like some bullshit that Trump said. So I just want to get this one out of the way. Have either of you uh, been to Nambia this time of year? I, I hear it's very lovely. I was actually just there last night. I get there. I have a actual, I have a magic portal in the back of my wardrobe. It was lovely. Oh, perfect. I, I, nice. I couldn't find it because they didn't have a sign out front. So you had to enter <laughs> through the through the alley. So I didn't, I didn't know how to get there. Well, my, my fictional friends say that there's a lot of fictional money to be made there. So, you know, hot tip for you both. Um, that, of course, was a line from Trump's, uh, well, it was part of Trump's UN appearance from earlier this week, which we will get to in the second part of the show. And of course, I do not want to bury the lead. We will absolutely get to John McCain's announcement that he won't vote for Graham Cassidy. But before I jump in, I just want to ask, are either of you guys watching the uh, the Ken Burns Vietnam series, documentary series? I've only uh, taped it. I'm, I'm going to get to it, I promise. And, and uh, it's it's supposed to be very thorough. And I, the fact that it had a, a it beginning episode talked about not just French Indochina, but the entire history of the country going yeah. back 100 years was, I can't wait. He's starting really go, going way back, and it's extraordinarily thorough. Um, this, by the way, uh, for people who are, may not be familiar, it's an eight-part series on uh, PBS all about the Vietnam War by Ken Burns. I am learning a ton. Um, for example, Ho Chi Minh, uh, which first of all, I learned was not his uh, real birth name, but in the armistice after World War One, when all of the European countries were being forced to give up their colonies, the ones that European countries that had been defeated. Ho Chi Minh apparently goes to Versailles to try to hand deliver a letter to Woodrow Wilson asking him to make the French leave Vietnam. And uh, of course, the letter didn't get delivered. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's, it's apocalypse now and the horror. Uh, but this this is actually the first Ken Burns documentary that I've ever watched. Am I, it, it, am I un-American for this being the first time that I've ever watched a Ken Burns documentary? Does that make me an outlier? But you you, you are with it enough to understand what, what the phrase Dear Clara means. Oh, right? sure. No, I can I you can hear the, dear, the dear yeah, Clara I, I can hear the banjo and the uh, the, the yeah, harmonica. You can, and the, see, you can see the pan across the still photograph. Yeah. <laughs> that, that actually is so ubiquitous now that iMovie has that as a function. Uh, it is called the Ken Burns effect. So how well, about I'm that? Glad, as long as they give him credit. No, they did, actually. I think, I, I believe, it's my understanding that he met with Steve Jobs to kind of negotiate it. So yeah, it is, <laughs> it's, it's become so ubiquitous that it's a cliche. And it is used extensively, as is the narration of Peter Coyote. And, who, and let, it, let it be, I'm sorry, let it be noted, as we're talking about Ken Burns, that it's, it's yeah, co-directed yeah. by Lynn Novick. Yes. Yes. 
Okay, I just wanted to put that out there. Absolutely, no. He's and and I, I think he's been working on this project for like ten years. Yeah. Um, and and I I love Peter Coyote, and I bring him up because uh, for those of you who don't know, I do voiceover as a voiceover artist. Yeah, yeah. And and he is he's wonderful, but he always does the same thing. His cadence always does this. He goes da 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 da. Like every single soundbite. And apparently, and I read there was a New Yorker piece on it, and apparently uh, Ken Burns directs him to do that. He's, he doesn't like any upward inflection. So literally everything has to end on a very declarative note at the end. So that's how I'm going to read the rest of the show. So I just want to give you guys a heads up. I'm going to do the rest of the show in character as Peter Coyote. Uh, that works so, for me. All right. So look, uh, we had prepared an entire show about how god-awful the Graham-Cassidy repeal bill was. Uh, and then, as I mentioned in the intro, John McCain just announced that, quote, he cannot in good conscience vote for the Graham-Cassidy proposal. And uh, that, I believe, means the thing is dead. But the, I mean... You guys just repeal and replace things like the fucking T2 Terminator. Um, well, there, are, there are still quite a few things to unpack. So let's just go ahead and proceed. I, I'd like to start by talking about McCain and all of this because uh, he had a choice, right? He's best friends with Lindsey Graham, but he also talked repeatedly about returning to regular order in the Senate. That was his reason for turning down, turning, giving the big dramatic thumbs down. And of course, we all know about his health condition. Um how do we think that this all went down? My gut says that McCain didn't even want to support the shitburger from the start, but that he gave Graham the time to make his case as a friend to see if he could get the votes. And then when he didn't, he just decided to pull the plug. That's Those are my thoughts. David, what do you think? I, I think that's true. I think McCain probably you know, certainly sealed the deal in that respect. And it's entirely possible that it would have failed on its own merits, even with McCain's support. But what I don't like about McCain's statement today was that I, I understand that he's process driven and that's something he holds near and dear. I would have much rather seen him speak more to the actual merits or should I say demerits of the bill and, mm. uh, the, the, uh, you know, especially considering his current condition and what healthcare means to him and his family and his, uh, so I would assume he has a, an even greater appreciation for what it means to have access to healthcare. Um, that, that was sorely missing from his statement. And, and in some respects, I sort of see him as leaving an open door. I mean, he calls it compromise, but future iterations of this type of legislation to somehow unravel Obamacare. Yeah, well, he he talked uh, there, and we'll get to this later. There was another part of his statement in which he called for a more bipartisan effort, which you know, I, I you can kind of see the hand gesture that I'm making here when I say those words. I see it quite well. <laughs> yeah, but uh, do we actually? Here's another fundamental question that I, I just kind of want to you know drill down on. Do we really think this thing is dead? Because here's my concern, Rand Paul. Right. He said that he's against this bill. He has called it gramnesty in tweets. But he was also against the earlier Obamacare repeals that weren't straight repeals. And then he turned around and voted for those. Uh, I, I can't get a beat on this fucking guy. Graham Cassidy, to my eyes, looks like a straight repeal. I mean, at least it's nominally a state's rights bill. Chad, what do you think? Do you think that I mean, do you think uh, Rand Paul might reverse course like he did on skinny repeal. I'm sure that him being the junior senator from Kentucky, he's probably getting a, a lot of sweet talking from Mitch McConnell right now. Yeah, I mean, he I, I think his his threat to vote no on this bill is not particularly credible, um, but he, he might try to extract uh, a little more out of it for himself ideologically than than is in it already. I think the 
the person they might have some leverage over and they've been trying to exert it is Lisa Murkowski. Yeah, let's talk about her because it, Alaska was looking at a 38% cut out to 2026 uh, in Medicaid. But now it's looking like they've been, at least for the last few days, they've been trying to buy her off by exempting Alaska from. The, and actually, former senior uh, Obama advisor Dan Pfeiffer tweeted out something to the effect of, hey, why not cut that same deal for the other 49 states and call it good? Um, so, what are our predictions on what Murkowski does? Does it? Does she she doesn't owe the Republicans anything. She won re-election as an independent as a write-in candidate. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think they have uh, electoral um, sort of leverage over her. Uh, I don't think she has a lot of reason to trust that whatever exemption they give her will remain in place in the long term. And I mm. think she has long-term interests uh, in mind. Uh, she wants to keep that job probably for the rest of her life, if not go and move into the governor's office eventually. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, I, I think the the hypocrisy here, and I'm not usually one to be, you know, to wave the hypocrisy flag, but I'd like to do it this time. <laughs> uh, because in, in 2009, when when uh, the Democrats were trying to, to keep their caucus together to vote for uh, you know, a 60-vote um, Obamacare passage in the Senate. The the last remaining holdout in their caucus was Ben Nelson of Nebraska, and they basically did the same thing. They made him the same offer, which was essentially to exempt uh, Nebraska from the, a lot of the costs of Obamacare I and the requirements about of Obamacare. That, yeah. They called it the Cornhusker kickback, mm-hmm. and it eventually got dropped. They got Nelson support anyway, which they ended up not needing because Ted Kennedy died, and it went to reconciliation. But, you know, of of all people, I'm going to let you guess who said this on NPR. This is basically says, if you say I will vote for the bill, if you exempt my state, that's crossing the line. Can you guess who said that? David, I'm going to guess the senator from Alaska. No, the senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham. So. So, yeah, here he is basically giving um, I don't know. You can't really call it a Cornhusker kickback. I don't think a lot of corn grows in Alaska, um, <laughs> but it's it's essentially the same thing. Right. Yeah. It's saying you hate this bill. It's going to be bad for your state. So uh, it won't apply to you, uh, which is what they try to do with. It's the coho uh, salmon kickback. <laughs> oh, very nice. Very there nice. You go. Yeah. The coho right. kickback. I Actually, ironically, I live in the coho salmon capital of uh, Washington State. We have a salmon spawning stream that runs through our property, and in October there are salmon days in Issaquah. So how about that? How about, yeah. how about the go. king crab oh. kickback? Because you don't have. There that. it is. No, we have no king um, crabs. Can uh, I just can I loop back just a little bit? I want to drop my two cents in on this whole McCain uh, Graham friendship thing. Sure, why not? Because, like, I, I'm working under the assumption that John McCain is 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 dying, right. Right? and that's probably true. Now, now, think about that. You have a friend going back decades. You've worked together for decades. You know this person's value. You know this person values some regular order in the Senate, and you go to this person and say, "Hey, could you do me a favor and drop <laughs> and dry, and like forget about your values?" Like you don't do that. You don't go and ask your dying friend for a favor. Well, I I, I come at it from the other direction where and, and get out your handkerchiefs right now because, you know, when when you are in the waning days of your life perhaps for whatever reason, you value friendships and relationships more than anything else including the lovely art of politics so maybe it it 
it certainly wasn't it in the end it wasn't driven by that but I, that's why i originally thought that mccain was going to and i was sorely mistaken and i guess happily mistaken but that's why i originally thought that mccain was going to support i thought the same thing. if only for the fact and, that graham cassidy but, sounds like a, the name of a bad uh, csny cover band but, nice uh, very nice to give graham maybe a little bit of the benefit of the doubt maybe he didn't pull the friendship card because i think also at the end of your life and i don't know this thankfully Yet I will someday. You might also be in a position to reevaluate who your real friends are, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And 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 Graham might actually have 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 an ounce of humanity left in him and and didn't pull that card and basically say it's your friendship or this bill. Lindsey Graham, you just got burned. <laughs> we, we absolutely, and I, I should say this whole thing is just predicated on something that I said. I We don't really know what happened, but I will just say this uh, to sort of close out the speculation on this. Um, I'm thinking that the political pressure is ultimately off of Murkowski and Paul to do anything now since McCain was the one to symbolically kill the bill, and I, that's my two cents. So I, in, I, I'm hoping that it, that it goes away. But David, actually, I want to shift over and talk about the particulars of the bill with you because sure. we plan to and i prepped it and uh you know like i said That's I, not why. it's we, important for people to know what could have happened no it's important that yeah. i i did all the fucking work and people should yeah absolutely and, and, and that, that too yeah exactly or you don't lose sleep, your beauty sleep for nothing exactly so um so graham cassidy would have turned over federal aca and medicaid money to states in Block grants, which Graham said is supposed to provide, quote, access for all. David, what could possibly go wrong there? Yeah, well, first of all, saying saying it's access for all, it's such a shallow slogan. It's lost all of its meaning. So do in, in terms of access for all, do I have the access to buy a house in the Hamptons? I do if I scraped <laughs> up a few million dollars in cash and that house in right. the Hamptons is all mine. But, you know, you and I and Chad. You, you only need a couple know, hundred thousand for the down payment. That's that's correct. Liquid, liquid. <laughs> but uh, I, I can't afford it and or ultimately get it. So I have access to it. But but you know what? My I won't have a house in the Hamptons and underground casting millions of Americans wouldn't have health insurance. And it's disturbing to think that had it gone through, you would have seen defunding to the tune of 15.3 percent of Medicaid defunding for people with disabilities. You would have seen a 31.4 percent drop in funding for uh, for health care for children under Medicaid. And there's this uh, real left-wing rag called Forbes, which <laughs> cited a RAND Corporation study, which said that the population of uninsured veterans would have gone from 5.8% to 9.1%. So there were so many horrible elements of this bill. I don't know how, other than the fact that there's some ideological elements that they're able to weasel into it, I don't see how a Republican could support this particular bill. Other if only to say, I think their only real motivation was, well, we, we've got to take Obamacare down at all costs. It's something that we ran on. It's something that we promised. We're hanging our hat on it and damn the specifics. And I believe, by the way, I believe those estimates of the effects of the bill do not take into, into account the fact that block grant funding is very often redirected elsewhere. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of fungibility on the part. Of yeah, the money is yeah. fungible, but not if you attach it to matching requirements, that way to requirements for matching the way that Obamacare does. Block grants let a governor basically, you know, plug up budget gap, plug up holes in the budget with money that's supposed to go to health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it could be it could be much worse than than what these estimates have given. And let's not forget that it also ripped away a lot of things that, uh, you know, 
Bill Cassidy said that it would not, like pre-existing conditions there in the fine print, uh, was the ability for uh, under states to uh, basically price people out. Uh, insurance companies could price people out uh, with pre-existing conditions. So sorry, Dr. Cassidy, it did not pass the Jimmy Kimmel test. Uh, it, to me, the whole thing seemed like a values-based bill wrapped up in an economic package. It would have been, what was it, something like a $230 billion uh, giveaway to billionaires, ultimately, would have been the savings that... Uh, uh, Paul Ryan would have been all too happy to pass along to uh, his billionaire interests. Um, also, and this is very interesting, One of Carl Hulse just wrote a piece in The Times asserting that one of the key reasons that McConnell and the GOP were pushing so hard on this was that money has been slowing down from big donors who are upset that the GOP Congress hasn't produced any results. David, any thoughts there? Well, I certainly think that's the case. I mean, going back to the fact that, yes, if this is something that you hung your hat on, this is what helped you ride into office. This was sort of your one of the tent poles of your of your campaign um, to, to not be able to hold uh, true to those promises and show yourself again as the majority party with control of both houses of the legislature and ostensibly the White House and not be able to get legislation passed, it's not a good sign. No. Well, now, okay, so uh, Lindsey Graham also claimed that this bill made single-payer more likely to happen within state control, which he said with a straight face. Um, And, Chad, with this thing probably going down, what does this do for the prospects of single-payer now? Does it it help? Does it hurt? What do you think? Um, I think it I mean, I, I actually think that single payer has a momentum of its own going right now. And what I believe is that had this passed, had Graham Cassidy passed, it would have made single payer more likely rather than less likely. I think Graham's got it backwards. And, 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 the, and I mean, the reason is that we choose between options that are on the table. Right. And if the option is to keep things at the status quo and the status quo is further to the right, you're going to get a lot more people who are open to ideas on the left if things are too far left. Right? Well, David, in the in the pre-show, you were you were quoting some numbers about support growing for single payer. Do you have those handy? I don't have them handy, but it was it, a majority of Americans now support single payer. Right. Um, I don't know if there's a full understanding of what that entails, and there's there's always the inevitable question mm-hmm. of you know how we're how we're going to pay for it. But nonetheless, uh, I I think I don't see single payer coming up anytime. Uh, in the next two years or the next four years, to be quite honest, the way the current configuration of things are. So I think we need to basically, as Democrats, be in a defensive mode. But once we assume control of Congress and hopefully the presidency, we should put it on the table and we should all, you know, keep the keep the momentum going for that type of discussion, since it seems ultimately if I mean, and maybe don't even call it single payer, make it co- universal coverage. I mean, I, I actually think single payer has a branding problem of mm. its own. If you talk about you say every American is going to be covered because certainly not every American is covered under Obamacare. Make sure that every single American not only has access to health insurance, but that is insured. Make that your end game. That's something everyone can wrap their their heads around, something every Everyone can appreciate. I think that's something that you could you could make that. I know we litmus test the hell out of ourselves last week, but <laughs> that's that's a litmus test that I'd be happy to take. What do you what do you think about Medicare for all? That's another term that's been floated around a lot. Medicare is very popular. Sure. 
Yeah. Bring, bring it on. I mean, however, however you want to get to universal coverage again, the devil's in the details, but however you want to get there works, works for me and just, and, and find a way to make it work and pencil out. All right. So I said, I was going to come back to this. And I'm going to now, uh, McCain said, quote, I believe that we could do better working together, Republicans and Democrats, and have not really tried. That was part of his statement in rejecting Graham Cassidy. Um, David, do you, do you think that McCain gets his perhaps dying wish? Do you think there's yeah. going to be more bipartisanship in negotiating this? Yeah, if, if you believe if you believe there's going to be more bipartisan work on healthcare, you also believe that Lucy's going to let Charlie Brown kick the football. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, sorry, sorry, John McCain. You don't get your wish. So, if this thing is dead for uh, for good, what does this mean for the Republicans? If the clock really does, and if it really runs out on the reconciliate for reconciliation on the thirtieth, which you know, fingers crossed here. Does this become an electoral issue for the GOP in 2018, Chad? Or maybe conversely, does it turn out that maybe voters didn't want repeal to begin with and the senators who pledged to support it may be on the hook for that? What what do you think? Well, let's not forget that it's a midterm election and, and there's not going to be one single campaign. That's sure, there's, there are many, thing, right? of course. There's going to be, so there's going to be a lot of heterogeneity in, in the campaign issues. There will be some places where... Um, you know, the constituency will not reflect the national majority, and they will want some version of repeal. Um, but I think you're going to see a lot of dropping off. You know, this was a really popular issue for Republicans when there was no chance of it passing. Right. <laughs> so, so this is you know this is the idea of strategic. We call this strategic voting. That. It's it's fine to vote for something when it makes you look ideologically pure and you don't have to deal with the policy consequences. And strategic voting is not as common among the general public as it is among office holders, but it, it does exist. Yeah. So, you know, and this is reflected in the fact that you had all these people who said they were against Obamacare, but they were in favor of all of the policies of Obamacare so long as you didn't call it that. Exactly. And that gets back to David's branding point, right? In a way, yeah. yeah. So Republican, but it's not just branding. It's it's not just getting the message right. It's, it's just acknowledging the fact that a, a messenger of your same tribe will be, you, you know, you're going to trust that messenger of your own tribe more than the other. And and we have a do we do have a tribalism problem within our political, uh, you know, our party system. So, and it's 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 still do. amazing. It's still amazing to me that you know, if, although you know, the Republican Party is often perceived as the you know representing the interests of corporate America, corporate America in the form of the insurance companies lined up almost to a letter against. Graham Cassie, which is just astounding to me. And insurance been, and companies, did. absolutely That's bizarre. Less me. certainty across the board, and you know, less funding. I mean, well, they, rates they were going to rise by twenty percent. You'd think they'd be but, happy with but that because they had to make up the funding they were getting elsewhere. So no, yeah. the, the fact that they were opposed to it, I, it was it was in their own self interest as well. They yeah. were at the table when Obamacare was being crafted. And, and to be quite honest, Obamacare would never have worked without the cooperation of the insurance companies to begin with. So under the current healthcare configuration, they I, I've had my own battles with insurance companies, believe me. Uh-huh. But uh, they, they, they are a force to be reckoned with. I'll, I'll say again that they might they might have some some people who understand a little bit about formal theory and rational choice. And they might see that single payer will 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 remove them from the process. 
and that repealing good. Obamacare would have made a, a single payer much more likely. All those actuaries would would have figured that out. I, I agree. <laughs> well, so speaking of self-interest, uh, let's let's talk about Trump in in this. And David, I'll give you the final word on this. How do we think Trump responds? Do, does does he go after uh, party leadership for once again failing on uh, repeal? And does that further destabilize the party? Uh, short answer, yes. I mean, as, as long as he has someone to blame, he can blame leadership, he can blame individual senators, uh, you know, for, for not uh, not unraveling Obamacare in some way. And, and unfortunately, because of them, the legacy of Obamacare lives on. And I'm going to run somebody against you in 2018. And, and it just gives him more fodder for tweets. Um, whether that translates into actual political power on his end is, is another story. All right. Well, oh, so to, to get us out of the segment, I'm going to go ahead and do my Peter Coyote. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this. Do you need a website? If you are an author, a musician, a small business person, or basically a person in life, I'm just going to answer this question for you. Yes, you need a website. Go over to thebestexamplesite.com, where I have prepared a video showing you how to set up your very own website in six minutes for 12 bucks. Go check it out, because you definitely do need a website. Also... How many times can I say the word website? All right. I'm Stephen Cox. They are Chad Levinson and David Gershwin, and we are back. All right. So let's talk next about Trump's speech to the U.N. Uh, I want to talk about the substance of the speech, such as it was, uh, and then we will talk a little foreign policy. So as we know, our 45th president of the United States stood in front of the U.N. General Assembly, UNGA, and threatened to, quote, totally destroy North Korea and then called its leader Rocket Man, which, fucking similar to the total eclipse, I couldn't get that Bonnie Tyler song out of my head then. And now I'm stuck with the Elton John song in my head. Uh, but uh, I guess it could be worse. He, he could have called him, like, I don't know, uh, Susudio. That, that, there. Now that's stuck in your head. Uh, so, yeah. So that's our president up there, right? The, free, the leader of the free world, sounding like every insane dictator ever, like, like when Ugo Chavez got up and called Bush Satan and then said he was waiting for the sulfur smell to dissipate from Bush's speech. So that's that's our guy now. Hooray. And, and John Kelly just looking down with his face in his hand. That that expression is how most of America has felt since November 8th, 2016. Anyway, I personally was less alarmed by the rocket man comment. And I was alarmed by that, uh, to be sure, than I was by the whole America first doctrine. Uh, the speech was written by the last white nationalist still standing in the White House, Stephen Miller, and it sounded like it. The word sovereignty appeared 21 times in the speech. Chad, you're our IR guy. What are the implications of Trump just getting up there and saying to the world that he's going to put America first, quote, just like you, as the leaders of your countries, will always and should always put your countries first? That line got applause, by the way, although it was kind of smattering and uh, it was led, I'm sure, by Russia and China. Uh, But what is a potential fall out from that kind of isolationist talk. Isn't that stance kind of how world wars get started? I don't think so. Um, So I'd like to drop in a comment about how just stylistically it was like a bad sophomore paper. Yeah. You know, with like, you know, excessive alliteration. Well, Stephen Miller. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was it was real. Bush League stuff. Um, but, <laughs> I see what you did there. Very nice. Yeah, that might have well, even been into unintentional, but nicely done. I guess it's Trump League now. Yeah, um, exactly. it, it sounded like it was something written at the hand of a daughterly old man. Ah, oh, very nice. Yeah, we'll get to that in a sec. So yes, all countries' leaders put their country first. The the implication that he's he's suddenly doing this that it, it is that 
international agreements are by nature you know, a compromise, right? Or putting one's own country second, that the current world order somehow puts the U.S.'s needs behind anyone else's in the world. That's, that's the dangerous part of it. Uh, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who think that maintaining the sort of the really sort of velvet glove diplomacy within these international institutions does limit, you know, the 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 probability of war. I, I disagree with that, and especially if you look back at the the world wars. I mean, U.S. was, you know, the isolationist country. There's there's not really in in World War One and World War Two. We were, you know, because we're over here and the fighting was over there. We are surrounded by shark-infested waters. We have the luxury of isolationism. Kind of made our country thrive. It's been one of the factors, yeah. That's right. I mean, that we were able to basically eradicate a population that was here, take over, establish a technologically advanced government. Yes, it's been great for us. But it did not, I mean, isolation did, did, did not cause World War, U.S. isolation did, did not cause World War II. It did, you know. But what about World War One? Didn't it have it contributed to World War One? Didn't it? No, not really. I mean, especially no. I mean, world. First of all, the U.S. did not have a standing army at that time. The U.S. didn't get involved in World War One until very late because it didn't really have much to contribute. No. By the time we got onto the continent, it was pretty much just we had a bunch of French, a bunch of fresh troops. Uh, who didn't know what they were doing, by Many the of whom did not have rifles yeah, when they, they were introduced armed. to the front. It was unbelievable. Their, 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 their equipment was poor. Their uniforms were poor. They just walked through a basically a, a, a graveyard um, at, at the time. We were, you know, U.S. isolationism, you know, did I'm isolated and let's just not even let's forget about US isolation. Isolationism is not what caused the Japanese to occupy a country, China, ten times its size. Right. Isolationism is not what led Germany to expand its Lebensraum, its room to live, uh, throughout most of Western Europe. And it certainly did not cause, you know, tens of millions of Ukrainians, Russians not to mention civilians murdered by the Nazis, to die in the snows of Eastern Europe. Well, then, so bringing it back to 2017, does this amount to something of a Trump doctrine? Uh, you know, I, it's always sort of been the Trump doctrine. I also, doctrine is, is a word that has a specific meaning. I'm not sure that it's going to translate into a, a new set of rules and procedures by which the U.S. military achieves its its goals. I mean, he does... He did just recently um, sort of loosen the restrictions of using drones in certain places. Um, let's look at what he said about North Korea. First of all, he said, you know, total, we're going to totally destroy them. And that's a classic Trumpism. It reminds me of nothing except nothing in, in U.S. history except maybe massive retaliation. That was the phrase that expressed the Truman Doctrine before mm -hmm. the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons. Right. Right. You don't. And which is to say, like, if if the Soviets step out of line at all and threaten U.S. interests or allies, we were going to rain hell upon them. And we had the ability to do that because they couldn't respond in kind. But now we're in a situation where North Korea might be able to respond in kind. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, David, I want you to just weigh in um, on what you think the end game here is of all of this shit talking uh, with North Korea. I mean, it's not working with Kim Jong-un. First of all, he keeps firing missiles over Japan. Uh, he called Trump a mentally deranged U.S. daughter, which 
which is hilarious. Uh, but then he went on to say that he would, quote, tame Trump with fire, which is decidedly not hilarious. Uh, what What is Trump playing at here in your mind with North Korea? What's the end game? I, I don't think he has an end game. I think it's nothing more than pure bellicosity. Uh, and bellicosity is not a policy. Yeah. So I don't think Kim Jong-un is threatened at all by this type of tough talk, although Trump thinks that that's the only way he can get to Kim Jong-un. So so why even bother with the tough talk? So we've gotten to this point that sanctions and diplomacy haven't worked in terms right. of denying North Korea their nuclear capability. They're threatening now to, to uh, explode a hydrogen bomb over the Pacific and in violation of nuclear test ban treaties and so forth. Um, you know, all-out warfare. Which they did not, any, which they are not signatories to. Fair enough, fair enough. But uh, <laughs> all-out warfare is not in anyone's interest, and even the most hardline Trumpites, including Mr. Bannon, would tell you that that's really not a viable option. It would only lead to, uh, you know, mass uh, human devastation, including American lives. Um, since, since you mentioned old Mr. Bannon there, was he right in his interview that he inadvertently gave to American Prospect, where he said, uh, he said, quote, until somebody solves the part of the equation that shows me that 10 million people in Seoul don't die in the first 30 minutes from conventional weapons. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no military solution here. They got us. Um, are we just going to have to get used to a nuclear North Korea? In in so many words, yes. I mean, this is we have to accept that this is where we are. I mean, we've been accepting for years that although it's not as much of a direct threat to the United States, that India and Pakistan have nuclear capability and that, you know, years ago and when when, uh, you know, arms control experts would you know debate where the mo- biggest likelihood of a nuclear threat was. It was uh, an ostensible war using tactical nuclear weapons between uh, India and Pakistan. That was considered the hottest potential sure. danger zone on the planet. So now I but think just, we, so we've so accepted understand, that. Yes. Just so people understand what tactical nuclear weapons are, is there are yes. very small nuclear weapons yes. that aren't much larger than con- large conventional weapons. But the idea of crossing the nuclear threshold. The idea, thought, right? I know, yes, but yes, this is, yes. this is a big, I got you. I, I just want to make sure people don't get too scared. I got you. However, but but by the so we've accepted that, and I think we also need to accept the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons. So how are we going to find? I mean, a workaround seems like such an overly simplistic term. But how <laughs> do we live with that? How do we move forward? I certainly don't have the answers. Well, but there's we, we can't we can't well, put the here's, here's what you, we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Here's what you don't do: is you don't threaten to annihilate them. Right. Because I'll, I'll, if, I'll sign on with that. Because because all of all all I mean just about everyone except maybe this one idiot that I know at George Washington um, (laughs) believes that I I mean I'm 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 this is not my area but I'm I'm quoting people that I respect a lot Corey Shockey uh, Mira Rapp Hooper um, Vipin Narang they've all been making rounds and I, I recommend if you come across any of their names on Twitter or in the Times or Washington Post read what they have to say they've been very smart about this do we know that the one the one the one time that 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 use using nuclear weapons is a rational spot response is under threat of annihilation right so stop threatening to annihilate them if you don't want them to use those nuclear weapons right well and and speaking of nuclear weapons let's shift over and talk about the iran nuclear weapon uh, agreement a deal that seems to kind of sort of have been working um, what's he up to there, David? Is this just another attempt to undo Obama's legacy, consequences be damned? What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, it's first of all, it's ridiculous that he's, you know, playing coy on his decision and saying, like, I'll let you 
you know, I'll let you know. Classic Trump playbook, letting him change his mind based on the last advisor that he himself listened to. <laughs> yeah. But but to answer your right, question. And making sure the next episode gets good ratings. There yeah, you go. there you go. Yeah. Stay tuned, everybody. And, and make, uh, but yes, I see it is it's completely driven by him wanting to undo an Obama administration win than anything else and exhibiting, as I said before, with North Korea, bellicosity. Who's going to who's going to challenge him beating up on Iran? Right. I mean, that's it's an easy an easy bully for him uh, to go after. So so now, as a result, we have uh, the Iranian foreign minister talking about re-enriching uranium stockpiles. Uh, he wasn't talking about that during the uh, Obama administration, by my recollection. Um, and so, you know, is there room to legitimately reassess and rework the agreement? There absolutely is. And there's some there's some elements of it that are still uh, somewhat murky in nature where you have sitting U.S. senators who don't know uh, some of the elements of that agreement. So hopefully, hopefully, Trump's tough talk does indeed make way for some legitimate reassessment of the agreement and to make it work i mean if you're going to if you're going to reenter it what do we have to offer them and i'm really unclear about what we could possibly offer iran at this point yeah right well you know trump's a deal maker uh, he's a yeah, deal maker yeah. guy yeah come on right so i mean the idea that we're going to reenter negotiations i don't if i were iran i would not see any reason whatsoever to re-enter negotiations right now. Right. Think about think about what it would take to for for Iran to be in a poor position here. It's um, it's sort of counter negotiators. The you know the rest of us, the rest of the world, um, would have to be uh, of a unified mind. And there's no reason for Iran to believe that Donald Trump can lead an international coalition <laughs> in any kind of negotiation. One of the, the the benefits to Iran of the Iran deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was that a lot of the benefits to them were front loaded. That we were going to release monies that we had essentially owed them since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. They've got that money. This was this was all the supposed cash that was delivered to Iran, which of course it wasn't delivered in piles of cash. But they've gotten a lot of the benefits already. So why would they walk away? Right. Um, right. Right. You know, we, we it, it's they've you know, there's been some people, you know, some of the European countries have said, yeah, we're willing to sit down. I, I don't really they might be willing, but I don't if I were Iran, I would say, yeah, you go try and 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 and. And sit across the negotiating table on the same side as Trump. Yeah. You know, doesn't this complicate things, too, with North Korea? I mean, after all, isn't Absolutely. this the same sort of deal that we're looking for with Kim Jong-un? I mean, wouldn't we like to see him back away from his nuclear program? Listen, states almost always start from a position of, of doubt when it comes to the credibility of the commitments other states make, especially their adversaries yeah. um, and even their allies, because who knows who's going to be in charge of that country in two years or 10 years. I mean, I just reminded my students about what the Weimar Republic looked like. It was the most permissive liberal societies mm -hmm. in the history of Europe. And 10 years later, they were deep into fascism. So you don't really know um, what the other state's going to do. But you, if you you know, that credibility is valuable to you. So you do things to make yourself more credible, not less credible, which is what this does. All right, David, I'm going to give you the final word today. Um, does this embolden, you, you had mentioned this uh, in pre-show, does this embolden uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, our closest ally in the region, for better or for worse? It seems like the last time there was a threat of a nuclear power in the region, Israel did a strike on Iraq. Uh, without the agreement in place, are we at risk of that again? 
Well, I certainly hope not. And that was that was back in 1981, and that's when Menachem Begin was Israel's prime minister. But this is Netanyahu's fourth round as prime minister of Israel. And in this latest round, he has certainly absorbed, either intentionally or unintentionally, some of the personality traits of Donald Trump. I think I think in some ways he's felt more emboldened and excused by Trump's bellic. I can't get enough of the word bellicosity this week. I apologize. But he's been emboldened by that and, and not, not in a very good way. So I certainly don't think it is a likely scenario, but you know, with Israel and especially with someone as hawkish as Netanyahu to act in Israel's self-interest is not out of the question. Geographically, though, uh, an, Ira- an Iranian strike is far more difficult than a strike on Iraqi facilities. So I, it's, it's not in it, it is in the realm of possibility, but I certainly think it's unlikely. Well, like everything else, it is a fluid situation and we will be keeping an eye on it. All right, gentlemen, that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you would like to be up on all of our goings on here at the show, head over to Think Out thebeltway.com and hit subscribe. And if you listen to Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, do give us a rating. We really, really like that. But we especially like positive ratings. What can we say? Uh, Think Outside the Beltway is a production of Get Creative, Inc. I am Stephen Cox. They are Chad Levinson and David Gershwin. And this podcast kills fascists. Isn't it pretty to think so? After all, tomorrow is another day. <laughs> Very nice, Peter Coyote. We'll see everybody next time. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>